0: Today on EdgeFX.
1: It was living with dogs and having them as a pack on land where they could run and seeing their amazing ways of thought that I began to be interested in the lives of dogs.
0: Literary and animal studies scholar Laura Perry speaks with Colin Diane, professor of English and law and author of several books, including The Story of Cruel and Unusual, Haiti, History and the Gods, The Law is a White Dog, and most recently, With Dogs at the Edge of Life. Their conversation follows the tracks of dogs in our stories, our homes, and on our streets, and explores what dogs can teach us about criminality, personhood, and our ideas of justice. What brought
2: you
1: to dogs, or what brought dogs to you? I've always had dogs, but then for a long stretch in graduate school and as a professor, I never had dogs because I lived in places where cities like New York City, <laughs> where I, I didn't really want to have a dog. I was traveling so much. It was the move to Tucson and the University of Arizona where I ended up with my pack, my three dogs. And that's what did it, because that was the first time since childhood that I was able to watch the daily lives of dogs Uh together it changed my life and I've never been able really to live without a dog and I couldn't since so that's what it was living with dogs and having them as a pack on land where they could run and seeing their amazing ways of thought that I began to be interested in the lives of dogs and dogs in particular
2: And in With Dogs at the Edge of Life, you share stories of dogs who are figures of religion and devotion, scapegoats and pariahs, uh, beloved family members who are part of a pack, uh, strays and criminals. So what kind of broader intervention do you see Dogs at the Edge of Life
1: making in our understanding of animals and humans? Thank you. That is such an important question. When I wrote it, I was really interested in, through dogs, bringing us more in touch with those people we might typically hate or feel we have nothing in common with, most particularly uh, white rural Southerners. Uh, I was led to them because of their love of American Staffordshire Terriers. And at the time that I began writing this, we were uh, with Obama And there was no sign of a Trump on the horizon. So my interest was really compelled by the dogs who could open a way of understanding between, let's say, elite, uh, more academic, liberal types and those people in the countryside who were breeders but who loved their dogs and were not all of them dog fighters. So that's what got me really involved in the question of cruelty and a certain kind of animosity toward um, humane, so-called humane organizations, who for a long time, they've changed now, but for a long time uh, were exterminating large groups of pit bulls because of alleged dog fighting. Very often, Those uh, stories were not true. And so it was very, very interesting legally to pursue that. And that's the second part of With Dogs at the Edge of Life, right? Which is, I think, less memoir and more case law. And you really
2: dig into evidence there and thinking about the ways that material evidence on dogs' bodies can be interpreted in very different ways depending on what kind of case person who's interpreting the evidence is building.
1: Well, I go into great detail about the scars and our lack of scars and the way in which assumptions uh, can be made that really substitute for proof of evidence, the scene. I think that, for me at least, in terms of the law, forfeiture operates differently, uh, criminal forfeiture and civil forfeiture, depending on your status or your color. And so, The taking away of dogs and the extermination of them operates differently depending on your class and your status. And that's why I became very, very interested at the time in that form of injustice where the link between human and non-human was really rather hard and fast because both suffered the inequity. And I was very interested in that attachment between the human and the non-human.
2: Could you explain a little more for people who maybe aren't familiar with forfeiture and and the way that that
1: plays into the stories you're describing? Yes, thanks. Forfeiture uh, is a fascinating, fascinating um, point of our history in that as far back as 1890, at the time of Plessy versus Ferguson, there was a case, Centel, which was the first real case where you could discuss forfeiture, civil forfeiture. It is something that's specific to the United States because with forfeiture, you do not have to have due process. You don't have to have the burden of proof. It means that the police can take whatever is seen to be, I'm still thinking medievally here, the sinning object from Mm -hmm. you. Without due process or without proof, hearsay is enough and civil forfeiture is very very rampant now um, especially in terms of drugs you know alleged drug dealers lose everything and uh, there have been really fascinating articles on how much money is made by states because of civil forfeiture because of taking of property but the business of forfeiture interests me most in terms of what happens to animals in particular dogs Imagine, uh, you know, the police can come in and take your dog or take your dogs; you forfeit them to the state. And this is something that goes all the way back to the, you know, 18th century, if not further back. Obviously, it's a medieval thing, a forfeiture. But, but I think it is interesting that the that forfeiture is a way in which, and I'm only beginning to deal with this uh, in case law at length. It's a way in which those who do not have and those who are of a certain color can be disenfranchised without due process of law. And in the case of the Boudreaux, uh, in particular in Louisiana, you know, they lost their ninety-one or two dogs uh, because of forfeiture. That was what was brought up in the cases, that it's legal and that it is the power of the state to take whatever is a threat, in the old language, to the health or welfare of the community. And so it's a very, very old uh, practice that is constantly reinvigorated here in the United States.
2: And that threat to the community, as you've written about in other works, is something that is marshaled against both noxious animals like dogs and also humans who are determined to be threats to the community. That label and category
1: has been what has enabled all manner of forms of state violence. Right. The categorization is fascinating because they will say, you know, it's not the human you're afraid of. It's their dogs. But it is interesting, uh, the the kind of one-on-one lamination of the pit bull onto the African-American male. And so clearly, the attack on the pit bulls very often is an attack on a specific uh, targeted population. There are instances throughout with dogs at the edge of life of this kind of immediate murder of dogs seen to be threats merely because they're affiliated with or loved by a person whose status is constituted as a threat, a black male in particular.
2: And Um, in that way, they become both racialized and
1: criminalized. They're racialized and criminalized. criminalized, And it's a kind of... Mutuality of adaptation, the two. I'm so fascinated by the way in which the permeability between human and non-human happens most in these racialized situations where you're creating phantasms of criminality that have extreme power, and they only have that force because they are moving rapidly in between categories we normally keep separate so that there's a constant kind of permeability between what we constitute as human and non-human, and the two are both attacked you know, at the same time. I think also a question that's much on my mind, uh, having talked with a few people here about affection, racialized, what we might call racialized love. The idea of love changes, our attachment changes, when the law is considering the person who owns. Like, it's very easy to see a white liberal uh, woman uh, with a dog and just assume that there's love there, whereas you would assume that love doesn't exist at all in the same way, if at all, for an African American with their dog. And that really interests me, this notion of who gets to appropriate, who is condemned when, and how does affection work across racial uh, categories? How do we define cruelty differently for different kinds of people? For example, let me just say, yeah. the endless uh, debate between, is it more cruel to keep a dog tethered outside in the yard or to keep a dog in a crate all day? And there's, there are really debates about you know, which containment is more cruel. Tethering is outlawed in many states, right? So these are the kind of debates that can draw you into heated arguments with animal, quote, lovers.
2: So you've been researching and writing about dogs for many years. Has anything changed in your approach to dogs and dog law and personhood over that time?
1: Well, I haven't been working on it that, that long uh, at all. I mean, um, the law is a white dog, began just as metaphor. That book and that image of the white dog only began because of that story in Haiti of the spirit that's the white dog that takes over the person. I was was writing about prisons and mass incarceration and personhood, but I wasn't writing about dogs at all. And then as I started writing the book, dogs kept seeping in. And by the end, in the chapter Skin of the Dog, It was all about dog law, but this was a complete turn in my work. So that was just, what was it, 2008, 2009 when I began it? And it was published, I guess, in 2011. So it's really not that that many years. It's just about 10, but it was that last chapter that led me to realize there's a lot more to be done through the eyes of dogs and from the ground of animals in order to understand what's happening with humans. And that's what the result of that was with dogs at the edge of life. So
2: So you just said the phrase through the eyes of dogs, and that's something that comes up in the final chapter of With Dogs at the Edge of Life when you're looking at several dog films and you point out that a shift in perspective, trying to see through the eyes of a dog is important. So I was hoping you could explain why that's important and why you want us to try to see through the I eyes bet you of a know dog
1: because you're asking these very precise <laughs> questions <laughs> um, I, I think that it's everything. The more I live and the more I see how politics works now in this country, the more I believe that it's a prejudice is a perspectival technique It's about how one sees so, through dogs you begin to see things differently. And so it's, it's a way maybe of building from the ground up, from a place where most people agree, most people have dogs, have some relation with dogs. And if they begin to really try to put themselves perspectively in the place of how the dog is seen, I think that not only would the division between species change, but the division between colors would be transformed. So the question would be like, well, what does it mean to see through the eyes of dogs? And I think that that's still something, of course, that one who's not a dog (laughs) yet um, is working through uh, what it means. And I think it has to do with what constitutes persons, right? How we see the what we think of as not human, but actually persons. And consciousness or awareness is the litmus test for personhood. It doesn't matter what you look like. If you are conscious and aware, you can be constituted as a person. I'm thinking of Lockean uh, identity politics, as it were. The question of that perspectival technique or the, the way in which one could change how they think through what they see seems to be not just a matter of affect, but most of all a matter of the senses. That if you could see without the preconceived ideas that we carry with us, if you could see differently, I think the relationship between people could change. And so people keep saying, well, what's the resolution? Uh, so how it, is this in practice? And it's not that I think that everyone <laughs> has to have a dog or has to live you know, with an animal. But it is to try to open one's minds up to what we as humans constitute as primitive, as subordinate, as unreasonable, unreasoning creatures. Open the mind up to an unreason that is far more thoughtful and provocative in terms of empathy than any kind of rationalism or cognition as we are taught you know in western enlightenment circles so it really is about just thinking through forms of seeing that are not hierarchical that have a lot to do with a different way of positioning oneself which is far less haughty or highfalutin than some of the more metaphoric stances one could take um, about love of dogs or humane uh, this or that but rather a far more simple and daily practice of quotidian relation or attending to what is not like yourself. Uh, it's an attentiveness, as I think I write. It's it's, it's more of a kind of per, perception or attention to things than it is a kind of formulation of thoughts about those things.
2: You begin with a moment that many other animal studies scholars begin, which is closeness to an animal that you know. So I'm thinking of the way that the animal that therefore I am, by Derrida begins with him being embarrassed in front of his cat many other animal studies scholars come to animal studies through the love of one animal through the love of a horse through the love of a gorilla that they met that that brings them to animal studies and so I'm wondering how you see your work relating to animal studies as a field do you think of yourself as an animal studies scholar is that a a useful okay I
1: don't and I don't know why (laughs) it's not something I thought about I mean, you're asking me, so I've never really thought about myself that way. I mean, I think that, for example, Donna Haraway and I have this running communication uh, back and forth, and I'm wondering, you know, would she even call herself animal studies? No, I think that we both kind of distrust uh, species, I, mean, I don't want to speak for her, I'll speak for myself, uh, species uh, distinctions. Like when Lori Gruen did a race in animals institute, I can really identify with someone who's working on race and animals. But, I, but the animal studies rubric, like many disciplinary rubrics, I, I don't identify with. So I'm kind of floating between and outside fields constantly.
2: And that's what your work on law and literature does, too, is you reject the The reason that we assign to law and the fictitious nature of literature that we assign to literature and show how our attempt to shoehorn these things into distinct fields ultimately means that we leave out things about the law that we would notice if we weren't invested
1: in it as a reasonable thing. I mean, I think the original sin of academia is categorization and specialization. It's a way of controlling and maintaining divisions. And I so I think that it, whenever one can kind of muddy the waters or not just tear down the barriers, so to speak, but do away with the copulative, do away with the law and literature, this kind of balancing technique that takes away what's really can be transformative and radical in both fields. I mean, I think what drew me to that is that I began to hear or get volumes on law and literature. And suddenly something was happening to the reading of literary text and case law that I didn't think. I thought it was a kind of merging that lost some of the best analyses that could be made that were political and kind of deep thinking about oddities or, as you said, details in both fields that just completely drop out. So several of your books have begun with
2: field work, with you interviewing people, with you seeing a location. And I was wondering if that is deliberate, if you try to have field work and radical ethnographies in all of your work.
1: Well, it's funny because another colleague had asked me this two nights ago about the decision or the deliberation that takes place. And there wasn't really, uh, because I was so young when I first went to Haiti. Um, When I first went to a ceremony, I was just in college. I mean, I was like 17, 18. And I think I was accepted into the surround because I wasn't professionalized in any way. And so the... The ethnographic, you know, people keep calling me very often in reviews, the anthropologist. Um, It wasn't a decision. It's that I, I think that, like, I was raised on the new criticism, right, where you just stay with the text, and that becomes your field, the words on the page. Well, so I ended up approaching everything by the terrain. I would never write about anything that I had not, in some way, Lived in, and I would never write about a group of people that I had not, in some ways, had that quotidian daily experience with. It's a kind of rootedness, which I was lucky enough to be able to do in the places that I chose to go to, you know, over the years. I was never a formal academic, you see, I was a dancer, so I came in through the back door. So the expectations were very different, and I was always kind of interdisciplinary. Didn't ha- didn't kind of come up through in one department or the other.
2: So I'm curious about your archive and your approach to it, because this is something that I deal with in my own work. Um, Because of what you study, you're often drawing on archives where voices have been left out or deliberately erased or not included, whether dogs or slaves or terror suspects who are outside the bounds and so denied their right to speak on their own behalf as extraneous persons or as unreasonable voices. Is your approach to this archive of negative personhood different because of these absences from the
1: record? Uh, how do you mean absences from the record? Because they're not, ab- because they're absent from the?
2: Yes, that the record doesn't include their voices all the time, or that when you're going back and looking at these case laws, mm-hmm. it's the voices of the state that are there, not always the voices right. of the animals or the voices of the slaves who are, mm-hmm. because of, um, whether illiterate, whether deemed unreasonable, Mm -hmm. that the kind of record keeping doesn't capture every voice. And you're particularly interested in these voices that aren't captured.
1: Definitely. Uh, The impositions to look for uh, what has been silenced. But I think that question leads me to think about my work on uh, earlier things like Poe and uh, working on a mainstream kind of writer. Uh, you know, which I I worked on Poe for a very long time and um, Melville still. And so I'm thinking, I guess it's not just that, I think what attracted me to Poe, of course, is that he was so disliked (laughs) and he was so ignored during his time uh, and demonized. But over the long term, what interests, interests me is to try to find out a new terrain for understanding his Gothic, and that's what really changed my work. The one thing that had never been talked about until I wrote about it was a, his involvement with slavery uh, in his writing. Most people thought of him always, at the time that I kind of came in uh, with Amherst Bondage as a, a pure poet, a poet who was an idealist that could be compared to the French symbolist, etc. And I was seeing all this murky uh, materiality in the ideal woman, the iconic Poe lady. And I remember when I was lecturing, uh, still in the 90s, at the Baltimore Athenaeum in honor of Poe's death and his life, and I had people stand up in the audience and said, you have just contaminated the purest love poems in the English language. So that there were people. You know, then in the mid 90s, I was working literarily, who reacted in this kind of purity and danger mode, you know, that I had somehow done something to the terrain of the poetic that was a profanation. And this interested me greatly and transformed the way I worked, I think, on everything. But it began through reactions to the circuit, kind of literary uh, canonical figure who somehow had to be kept separate from the dirt of slavery you know even though he was constantly wrestling with the problems that he saw around him and he grew up near the slave market in virginia so he he understood what he was what his images were what his particular form of gothic would be and i still think that's why he was so unpopular that there was a way in which people it wasn't just that he was you know Addiction, addicted or wild or strange it was that he he was really writing things that people at the time would have known exactly what he's talking about and I, I think that that uh, he was you know entering a place of materiality and matter which was in color which was tremendously threatening to the Emersonian notion of transcendence so i still adore his work <laughs> and that's where it all that's where it all began really with his landscapes and that terrain which people you know consistently thought of as so pure those landscapes the sketches so apolitical and so it really began with literature more even than the the actual field work that i actually did had done the, the literary gave the bite to the experience of the field. Mm-hmm. That's
2: a great phrase. I'm going to steal that phrase. The literary gives the bite to the experience of the field. Yeah. It reframed
1: yeah. my thought. <laughs> What's next for you? You have the a memoir. not yet released memoir. It's not yet released and I you know, this memoir took has taken 2 years. It's the hardest thing I ever wrote. And it's about the South and my mother. And it's been very painful uh, writing it. It's had tremendous health effects, actually, in the writing of it. And I'm just coming out of this writing. I have no idea where it will finally land. Um, it's very Southern. So the voice is a, perhaps a shock uh, for people who knew me in the Northeast. I. The piece, the, the, the thing that is done and is sitting there, which I'm very proud of, is Animal Quintet. And that's about, you know, animals. From uh, horses to chickens, <laughs> white leggings. It's all about animals. And that's waiting because the editor wants this first to be out. So poor Animal Quintet, which is, again, like with Dogs at the Edge of Life, the thing that's closest to me. Uh, the thing that I loved most doing, you know, kind of has to wait. People love the personal; they really do, and they love that transgressive journey, which is very tiring after a while. The memoir mode. So I do have questions about the memoir mode, and I think the thing that's exciting about Animal Quintet is the way in which I, in each story or, or chapter, I am trying to trying to see through the eyes of the animals I'm writing. Uh, so that the style changes radically, and but people are so attached to this human eye, you know, that it's it's so. Um, I reach out to the animal studies people to become editors, <laughs> <laughs> so that we have much more interest in uh, mainstream interest in, in publications you know, that are about the self, but a self that's constantly affiliated with and run through with the animal. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Laura Perry, a doctoral candidate in English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with Colin Diane professor of English, Robert Penn Warren, professor of humanities, and professor of law at Vanderbilt University. Diane's most recent book, With Dogs at the Edge of Life, is now available from Columbia University Press. You can learn more about her work at colindian.com. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Laura Perry and me, Sarah Thomas, with special thanks to WSUM 91.7 FM, Madison. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back in two weeks with a conversation with Professor Michael Branch, co founder and past president of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment and creative nonfiction writer, about his new book, Rants from the Hill, on pack rats, bobcats, wildfires, curmudgeons, a drunken Mary Kay lady, and other encounters with the wild in the high desert. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX Podcast and Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps us connect to new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXNAG. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at EdgeFX.net.